So do you believe in ghosts? I made a comment up here preaching not too long ago that basically said that uh, believing in ghosts is not, uh, not in line with scripture and somebody told me that I ruined their enjoyment of their TV shows. So let me take a little different tack. Do you believe in aliens? I'm not talking about the kind that cross borders. I'm talking about the kind that come in from the top. (laughs) Teresa and I went to see a movie not too long ago. It was called Arrival. I don't recommend it necessarily. But I went to see it uh, primarily because I was given some input um, from some sociologists, Christian sociologists, that the movie Arrival was this generation's contact, the movie Contact. Some of you may remember that with Jodie Foster, I believe. And, uh, and if you're old enough that those two don't mean anything to you, then I'll take you back to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, see, that resonated. Some of you are just old, that's all. Yeah, that was 400 years ago, close encounters. Um, and the reason the sociologists are interested in that is because every once in a while there is a movie that comes out that seems to capture the th- thinking, the thought processes of a particular generation. And so I wanted to go and I wanted to see for myself what that movie was promoting as it relates to this whole idea of contact with aliens. So do you believe in aliens? And and the answer, I'm really not looking for your vocal answer, but I want you to process the information. And so your answer to that really depends on how you process it. Do you believe in aliens? And if you do, then there's got to be something that drives that belief for you. Maybe it's wishful thinking. I just think it's really cool if we could meet. Well, go watch some of these movies. They don't look cool at all. If you don't believe in aliens, then there's some reason internally that you uh, put in place to say, well, that doesn't meet my standards, so therefore I don't believe in them. I'm really not going to preach about aliens today and whether you believe in them or not, but I did want to set the table for us about how we process information for things and how we accept or reject things, which pushes me to John's gospel. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go to the book of John chapter two. And in a few moments, we'll be in the first 11 verses of John chapter two. But as you're turning there, what I really want to do is I want to underscore what I just started off with, and that is that there are things that we believe that are driven by how we process information. And so John writes his gospel, and he presents for us a series of events. Now, he will call them signs. By the way, The movie Signs was another one of those uh, movies that captured a generation's perspective on some of that stuff I was just talking about. But John doesn't write them in that way. He writes this gospel and he strings together seven different signs that Jesus did. Now, we might call them miracles, but I think that John's um, approach is a little more sophisticated than just presenting a miracle and saying, okay, so now you should believe. Because John has a way of weaving together what Jesus did with what Jesus claimed. 
And so as we work through this, we'll see these seven signs and we'll walk through them first. Each one gets its own week. Uh, and we'll interweave with that when Jesus comes and he says, I am such and such. And so the way John lays this out is he gives evidence. And so back to the alien thing, if you believe in a, I don't believe in aliens, that's me. If you want to, that's fine. Uh, but I don't because I don't have enough evidence for me to believe that that's the case. And certainly not enough evidence to go against what I think scripture says. So with that in mind, John writes to say, here's your evidence. But I, let me just give you the disclaimer and, and the warning up front. When John says, here's your sign, then that immediately puts you and me into a crisis of belief. We're confronted with this and you got to do something with it. So part of what we'll look at today is, well, what do you do with it? John chapter 1, we begin reading in verse 1, and we find John saying these words, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the, okay now Baptists, we're fixing to get controversial, all right? And when the wine ran out, that sounded like a deacon party, the wine runs out. Now, I'm just kidding. I'm just totally joking. I, they, they never run out of wine. So, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I couldn't help it. Verse 3. Back to being serious. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone water, uh, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the question is, do you believe? And how much do you believe about this Jesus? What I want you to do today, and this for, for us to do together, is to, uh, to practice a little bit together here, a little reflection. Uh, and, and it comes out of one of the ways that I think is really good Bible study. And I'm always trying to throw tools to you for your own personal Bible study so that you're not dependent on you know, some book that comes out or some preacher to tell you what to believe or some Sunday school teacher. We all need to be able to take scripture and study it for ourselves. And so one of the things that I do is I throw tools at you every once in a while that helps you in the process of doing that. And so one of the greatest tools for this kind of narrative story type Bible study is to put yourself into the scene. 
So I'm going to invite you to join me today as we put ourselves into the sandals of some of the people in the scene that we just read. Because I think as we do that, uh, John's attempt to give us evidence is a lot easier to get to. So let's do that first with the bridegroom and his family. So put yourself in their shoes. I've been through a lot of weddings. All three of my children have gotten married. And uh, so we've done the whole wedding thing. And uh, I told them, I'm going to do one wedding for you. After that, you're on your own. You know why I said that? Because I hate paying for their weddings. That's why. Uh, Because it's, it's an ordeal. When we were going through the spin-up to Lauren's wedding, our daughter, for about, I don't know, six months, five months, that's about the time frame from the time they got engaged to the time they got married. Every time we got together as a family, the whole discussion was about weddings. I hate that. Just hate it. All right, so with that in mind, I, when I start putting myself into the position of this family who's doing a wedding, I, I, I just kind of cringe. But you know what? When I start understanding a little bit of the, how they did first century Jewish weddings, I feel a lot better about ours. Because first century Jewish weddings were week-long process. Okay, so it was this big celebration, and it typically involved nearly everybody in town. Um, and it was this ongoing thing, and I'm sure quite expensive. And so one of the things that we find as we look into this situation and this story is what really amounts to a social faux pas. You understand what that is? It's one of those things where it's just they, they find themselves in a situation that is contrary to the accepted norms of the day. And the, the, the faux pas here is they run out of refreshments. And in the process of running out of refreshments, they put themselves not only socially at odds with their customs, they also put themselves into a potential legal problem. This was such a big deal for them that there was this section of Jewish law that allowed someone who was invited to this thing to sue them for not having enough refreshments. I feel better about Lawrence already. So that's the scenario. So I want you to jump into the story now and recognize the pressure that is on this family and this bridegroom especially because they've run out of wine to drink. Here's the good news. Mary sees this. And we're going to talk about Mary in just a few minutes, but let's, let's make sure that we get to this point. Mary sees this family in their need, and so she goes to her source to do something about it. Now, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but let me just stop, and let's, this is the part of wearing it that I want us to really get. You ever find yourself in need? Maybe it's a social thing and you don't want everybody to know about it. Maybe you're just a private person. You don't want anybody to know about it. Maybe you broadcast to the world that you have a need. A lot of people do that really well. What do you do when you find yourself in need? When we were in college, when I was in college, we moved to the Panhandles uh, in Texas up near uh, Plainview. I was going to school in Plainview. We were living out in halfway Texas 
uh, on a farm. And so we were driving back and forth about 15 miles from where we lived into Plainview to buy groceries. And Teresa was working and I was going to school and all that kind of thing. And uh, we only had one kid at the time. And he was at that magic stage where uh, he just needed... Hmm, let me see how to say this. My wife worked for CPS. Um, she needed, uh, he needed, she just said instruction. Um, she, he needed to know the way of the Lord. <laughs> and so on this particular day, Teresa had him strapped in uh, and she was traveling from Plainview back to our home. And he was just... Um, he, he just needed instruction that day. So she pulled over on the side of the road to teach him a little bit about how Proverbs says to deal with children like that. And while she was on the side of the road, just her, one of the deacons of our church, as a matter of fact, he was the chairman of the deacons at the time. His name was Lou Hooper. And he'd been a farmer out in that area for many decades and uh, kind of a gruff guy, but... A heart of gold. And he was driving by and he saw that that poor youth minister's wife was on the side of the road. And so he pulled over and he said, you need some help. And what'd you say? I got this. I think something like that. My boy needs a whipping. That's what she said. Uh, but the point that I want you to get is Lou saw that there was a need there, and he stepped into it. You ever find yourself in need? You have people around you that have genuine needs, and they don't really know what to do with it too much? Uh, what we get if we put ourselves into the shoes of the bridegroom and his family is we get this picture not only that Jesus sees you in your need, but that he's willing to step into it. And as we find here, he steps into it with an extraordinary supply. He doesn't just do wine for them. He gives them a regal Chardonnay. There's another element here that I want us to get. Because we all, if you're not in need now, you just hang on because there's need coming your way. And it's important that we can settle in on this thing, the sign among others that we're going to see here. Part of the sign that John gives here is that Jesus steps into the need and he can supply the need no matter what it is. By the time we get to the end of John's gospel, we will find that Jesus is the only one who supplies for your greatest need, which is a Savior. There's another element, though, that I want us to get because uh, sometimes we settle into this, well, Jesus, you know, God, maybe he'll help me. If he does, he'll, it'll just trickle out. But you know, one of the things, if they were poor enough to run out for this celebration, which is what many scholars believe, that they were probably just not a very well-to-do family and they exhausted their resources and now they were in a social problem and potential legal problem and Jesus steps in and not only does he give them what they need to finish the celebration but notice what it says I think it's verse 6 there were six stone water jars there 
each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So let's be conservative and say 20 gallons. So that is, you math people help me out, 120 gallons of really good wine. What a great wedding gift for people of low resource. Whatever they didn't consume at the wedding would be left over for those daily needs of a young family. What is your need today? And do you believe that Jesus cares enough to step in? Let's change shoes now and let's get into Mary's shoes. Now, I like this one. Uh, I, I like this part of it because I, I th- well, I like it because I have a mother. Uh, you ever have, well, I'm guessing all of you have mothers, whether they're alive or not, it's beside the point at this point. You ever have a situation where your mother steps in and expects something from you? Now, most, <laughs> most people that I know have mothers who do that, and a lot of times they express their expectation of you with a look. You know what I'm talking about? And if the look doesn't get it, and I'm kind of dense because I miss the look sometimes. Uh, My mother has the ability with one or two words to let me know that I'm expected to jump into action. Now, she doesn't do too much to me anymore, but boy, there was a day when, when she really did that a lot. Why do you think Mary intervened here? Remember, we're supposed to be wearing her sandals now. Why, why do you think she intervened in the first place? Now, the easy answer would be to say these people were in a social problem uh, and these people were in a potential legal problem. We've talked about those things, but uh, I think maybe there's more to it than that. Get into her sandals and let's, let's remember a few things. We just came out of the Christmas season. And in the Christmas season, and we like to, and we should, read the Christmas story and re-familiarize ourselves with some of the nuances of that that sometimes get swept under the rugs of the rest of the year. Uh, So let's go back to Mary. You remember how it all started for her? Here's this almost certainly a teenage girl, uh, and she's betrothed to be married, and, um, and so she gets this visit from an angel who says... Congratulations, you're about to have a baby. Hello, congratulations. How could that be good news when I'm not married? And so he lays it out for her. And he lays out for her that this is a miraculous thing and God has visited you and you will give birth to the Messiah. Those are are big claims, big statements. And as if that's not enough, Mary also was working from what she knew her husband had heard, also from an angel. And then on top of that, in that manger, right after the birth of this baby, she has these shepherds who show up from out in the fields, smelling wonderful, I'm sure, and they run into her and they tell her what they heard from the the angels. There's that little verse of scripture in the Christmas story that is probably my favorite of the whole thing because it says, and Mary pondered these things in her heart. 
So the picture that I get is this teenage girl, a brand new mother, miraculously having a son, and all of these reports come in, and it is clear that this is a God thing in her life. And she sits, and she tries to make sense of it all. And so now we flash forward, probably 30 years, roughly, to where John is in chapter 2. Isn't it possible that Mary is facing this, thinking to herself in one way or another, come on, son, be who you were born to be. Every parent thinks that about their kids at some point. And so for 30 years, we have just snapshots of Jesus in his childhood. And so this, we have this stretch of decades where we have very little information at all. And so finally now John brings Jesus. This is his coming out party, if you will, as far as the signs are concerned. And I, I have to ask myself, why was Mary so quick to jump in? And when she jumped in, you notice what she did. She tells him. His, uh, verse uh, 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's that statement that says, do something. Now, do you notice how Jesus answers? Uh, Let's be real, all right? Now, we're going to be respectful, obviously. This is God himself we're talking about. But let's be real. Jesus says in verse 4, why you bother me with that? I love the interchange here. If If we were to be very literal in the way this translates out, Jesus essentially says, what is that to me or you? In other words, Jesus kind of says, let's mind our own business here. Hmm. Is it possible that maybe Mary is saying, now's the time? (laughs) Well, I think that is what she's saying. And I base that on what Jesus responds to her with. You see what Jesus responds to her with? Now's not the time. But here's here's where I'm now I'm going to get really uh, complimentary of Mary. Jesus essentially says to her, this is none of our business, leave me alone. But Mary won't have that. And so she turns to the servants and puts Jesus squarely on the spot. Because she turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, Teresa and I spent 20 years down in the Rio Grande Valley, right on the border with Mexico, you know, Brownsville, that area down there. And so many, most of the uh, Mexican food places there that we ate at uh, employed uh, wait staff, waiters, I guess is the right word, uh, who had come from Mexico. And their perspective on service for a meal is much different than what most of the time we see here. Because those waiters in in particular restaurants that we would go to, they had waiters. And this was not high-end restaurant stuff, not with us. uh, But they had waiters and they would stand at a distance and they would watch you. And if your glass of tea or whatever it was got more than an inch down, they were jumping in and filling it up. And if you needed something, drop a fork or something, boy, like that, they're on top of it. 
And so the picture, I think, I take of that and push it into this deal. When Mary says to those servants, whatever he says to do, you do it, immediately they focus on him, waiting for, what do you want us to do? It's just like a mother, isn't it? I told you no, and she says, okay, well, whatever, uh, you're going to do it anyway. (laughs) I don't think Jesus is taking orders from his mama here. But I think a very real human interaction is going on here. And it all revolves around the question, is it time? As we work our way through John's gospel, we're going to find multiple uh, points where Jesus says, now's not the time. Now's not the time. It's not my time yet. But then we get to the crucifixion scene. And as we move into that, he says, it is my hour now. It's time. So on the front end of this ministry, Mary believes, here's here's a key point for you. Mary believes enough to say, let's do this. Now, I'm going to tell you that I think Mary's belief is immature at this point. That's a big statement, and I get that. But the reason I say that is because Jesus responds to her, now's not the time. And yet she continues to push the issue enough that Jesus finally does it. Here, here's, let's put it on us now. Let's step out of her shoes and just wear our own. One of the things that happens with us is many of us believe enough that Jesus is who he says he is, that we're willing to say, okay, I, I, I want to be identified with you. I will take your name. I will take your life uh, and make it my own. And you live through me. And we, we make the decision to follow Christ and to trust him for salvation and all that. And as we do that, we take this and we begin to embody this belief that says, I believe that Jesus is who he said he was. But we don't always believe well enough to buy into God's timing and we push our own timing with God. And so I have a need. That's the first one we looked at. And then I take it to God because I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. But then I get twisted when he doesn't do it in the time that I want him to. I get this a lot through the years from church people. I've been praying about this and it's like God doesn't hear me. That's a timing thing. And if God really is who he says he is, and he is... And Jesus really is Savior, and he is. And the first part that we looked at here, and he steps into our need, he really does. Then the, well, see, it's a crisis of belief for us. I believe, but I want you to do it now. So I believe who you say you are. I just don't believe that you have the timing right. So do it according to my time frame. You may find yourself in that situation today. Kind of twisted because you know what you want. You know where you're going, but it's like God won't release to make it happen. So I think maybe that's part of Mary here, to be honest with you. I, I think Mary has her own timetable. And who could blame her? It's been 30 years. I'm, I need to see something because now, I'll tell you, when you have 30 years worth of memories, some of those memories start getting a little fuzzy. Well, let's move on. Um, I would just summarize that to say that level of belief is is belief, it's just not best. 
There's another level that we go to. So let's look at the disciples now because these disciples show us a bit of belief also. Remember what I started with. Do you believe? And if so, how much do you believe? So now the disciples come forward. and We need to answer a couple of questions, I think, with them. I guess I should just reiterate. There's very little evidence of the disciples even being there, right? Until verse 11. Let's ask a couple of targeted questions. First of all, why did Jesus do this miracle? Uh, And we could go back to, well, the people were in need. They had social needs. They had legal needs. So maybe that's it. Maybe that could be. But if that was all there was to it, I don't don't know why he would be reluctant and then finally comes to do it. Uh, that, That trips me up a little bit. So that pushes me to John. Why did John use this as a sign? And even more importantly, why did John use this as the first sign? that he puts in his gospel here. You know, only John records this miracle. It's the only place we find it. The other, the other gospel writers, didn't, it didn't make the cut. So why did John choose this one? Why did he put it first? And I think with that, we come to the answer, and it's a theological answer. John writes a theological answer account of Jesus' life. If you want chronological, go to the book of Luke. That's probably the most chronological step-by-step following the line for Jesus in his gospel. But John doesn't write that way. John doesn't even, he doesn't even claim to be writing this as if it is some kind of a chronological account of Jesus' life. John is trying to prove a point, and the point is you have evidence to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he chooses carefully the way he places these things. And so first, right out of the gate, he comes with this statement, essentially with the miracle that Jesus does and the way that he does it, he essentially says this, this Jesus that I'm presenting to you surpasses the old system of Jewish belief. Here's where I get that. Verse six it is. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Let me just stop and give you this basic statement. You go back and look it up or you can talk to me and we'll get a little more specific. But the Jews had these elaborate, the Pharisees had put together these elaborate ways of making sure that they were clean. Ceremonially and just hygiene and that kind of thing. And, and so what he's talking about here, these stone jars were used for them in the washing of their hands before and after the meal and uh, all the other things tied to their religion. It's a week-long thing, remember? So when Jesus says to those servants, fill them up, and they're filled to the brim, that's a detail that he gives us. That matters. And then Jesus transforms that water into wine. The picture that we get, the theological sign, is that Jesus now does away with the old system. Goes from being used to clean yourself up to being used in the celebration. And it's high grade on top of that. John says this Jesus is in fact the Son of God. And as the Son of God, as Messiah, the old system passes away. Do you believe that? And how much do you believe that? You see, it now it's a crisis of belief for those people. What are they going to wash with? What are they going to do for their ceremonial cleansing now? Here's your sign. 
So the last one, and I'll close with this. As I just kind of reiterate, verse 11 helps us with these disciples. The last statement, and his disciples believed in him. Let me just tell you, this is not a full mature belief yet. The other gospels, especially Mark's gospel, the way he can constructs that for us, the disciples are on this growth process, and they believe more and more and more, but they always have those doubts that kick in. At one point, they even say, who is this guy that even the winds and the seas obey him? Uh, and by the end of it, they, they believe at a deep level. So let me close that part. Musicians, y'all come on up. We're about done here. Let me close that part by saying this. Do you believe and how much do you believe? Is your faith in Jesus maturing or is it stuck at an elementary level? You see, you, the, the entry, the passport, if you will, to pick up last week is that you trust Jesus as your Savior. But Jesus has more in mind for you than just getting you into heaven. Matter of fact, my way of saying it is he would love to get heaven into you. But you see, that's a daily walk and that's a daily belief thing. And the more you're confronted with the claims of Jesus, the more a crisis of belief you have. Because you cannot say, I believe that you are the son of God, God in the flesh, my savior, and then just leave him there and walk away and do what you want. That kind of savior makes demands on us. And John will walk us through that as we go. We all find ourselves today at a crisis of belief. So what do you do with Jesus? There's one last group. And I'm just going to mention this one because this is the one that takes it to the next level for us. The, the last group that I want us to get in the, in the shoes of are the people who are at the party. Let's just assume in our language that all of this happens in the kitchen. They certainly wouldn't have advertised the fact that they're running out of wine. And so behind the scenes, you have Mary and you have Jesus and you have the servants and you have the bridegroom and you have the guy in charge. That's all happening back there. What were the, the people partying? What, what's their deal? Here's the reality for us. In about 10 minutes, we're going to walk out of here and we're going to walk out of the kitchen into the area where the wedding guests are partying. They're clueless about the claims of truth that Jesus makes. They're just doing their thing. So do you believe enough to walk out of here and share truth? Here's the reality. It's time. Jesus at first says, not my time, and then he did it. You know what that means? It's time. And it's time for you to react, to respond to the claims that he makes. It's time for all of us to take the good news of Jesus Christ out to the guests at the wedding and tell them about the Savior. Do you believe? And how much do you believe? There is an extraordinary life waiting for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask that you now move us at deep levels. We all sit here today having read through this little passage and worked our way through the event.
that it records. We all find ourselves at a crisis point now. What will we do with the truth of who you are? For those who are here today, Father, who do not know Jesus and the belief is is just kind of stirring and maybe it's not even full at this point. I pray that your your spirit would be um, working hard in that in that person. That they would come to that point of belief where they see their need for you. They see their need for life. They see their need for forgiveness. And they see their Savior well. Move them to choose life. Father, for those of us who have chosen life and have identified ourselves with you and we are your followers, um, we also are at a crisis point now because there are people all around us who are clueless about ultimate truth. And while they party, their lives are incomplete. So give us that drive. Help us to see people in their need. Help us to respond as Mary did. Help us to point them to Jesus. Help us to be good at that. In Jesus' name, amen.